Hello, Alaska. This is Pat Race. And this is Matt Buxton. And this is a podcast about Alaska. <laughs> You're going to hear for the next hour a lot of opinions about why, whether or not Will Smith slapping Chris Rock. With, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we do want to talk about like this kind of um, hot take this sort of situation maybe it's maybe because it's been giving me a lot of feels lately but yeah tell me about that so i mean like you guys know me i'm on twitter all the time you know tweeting legislative meetings tweeting redistricting news tweeting whatever else um and honestly there i think the last few weeks maybe the last few months maybe the last couple of years or something have felt to me to be kind of weighing on me a little bit because there's been I feel like just like this amazing amount of like everybody's got a hot take everybody's got a hot take about the hot take everybody's got a hot take about the hot take about the hot take and there's something that kind of just sort of breeds like negativity out of it that has been really really weighing on me I think and yeah I don't yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of like anger in there and I feel like the maybe the you know, some of the, some of where you're trying to be critical, some of where you're trying to receive criticism or, or, or take criticism or give criticism. I feel like some of that just gets real mean. And I don't, I don't know if this is like, if the temperature has turned up since the pandemic, maybe it's because we're not used to like interacting with real people in real scenarios. (laughs) It's like, and I, you know, I I think we're talking about this probably because the of you know what happened at the academy awards last night but i you know you see something like that and you're like oh wow this is someone that is disconnected a little bit from the reality of interacting with with people on a day-to-day basis and and i think that like maybe we're all kind of growing that way um you know i I just went on this trip and it was so strange to be around a bunch of humans that i don't normally interact with and be kind of like out of my bubble and out of my city and um and and you see like there's a lot of like squirrely drivers on the road a lot of like road rage and people are angry and weird and and i don't know if this is you know is this a product of of isolation or or what but it's it definitely comes through in social media so when you're the thing that's like got you down is that is that um do you feel like that's more about the, like the negativity in in comments or is it more about the like layering of like everyone has to comment on the thing and then everyone has to comment on on the comment i think there's there's a little bit of like a lack of patience with it i think is maybe what i i feel like there's almost this sort of rush to i don't know call people out and, and read into the emit you know the emissions you, you know there's sort of a inclination to read you know malice into what is really just an honest omission in a lot of things anyways. So that's interesting. That kind of goes back yeah. to your, like a few weeks ago, you were complaining to me about, uh, you, you made a tweet about a, uh, about the redistricting trial and you left something out about, you know, I think you didn't write about Melanie Benke and, and you'd been writing about her in every other article you'd written and you, you sort of omitted her from this one tweet and, <laughs> and you immediately got jumped for yeah. it. And it was like, what about Melanie Benke? And you're like, well, I, I have, I have been reporting on on yeah, her work. And even then, it felt even then I felt bad about pointing that out because yeah. it's like, well, maybe I was completely wrong. Anyways, uh, that's all to say, like, you know, I think that you know we've seen a lot of this lately. I think you look at especially at the response to um, Don, Congressman Don Young's passing. I think there was a lot of tone policing around that. That just well, there's I mean, all I get weird, it, right? I get that, stuff, like, though, right? Like, I mean, people are like. Uh, like criticizing a staffer who like yeah yeah everyone honestly everyone needs to chill out a little bit like I, I don't know I think that's the thing is that like to me Don Young was like you know whether I, I didn't agree with him on everything but I certainly think that Don Young wouldn't have given a crap about it all almost you know I think that there's like there's a little bit of like preciousness that everybody has around it that. I don't even know what I'm. I don't know what kind of point I'm trying to make with any of this. I, I think but it's what, just I, to say that, like, I think what you're trying to say is that we're all Chris Rock and we're all Will Smith, and, <laughs> and we need to fucking chill out. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's my message. It's just you know maybe like 
I think too, it, it's sort of, I, maybe I think I've been thinking about this a lot just because, you know, that's the nature of my job a little bit is, you know, I'm a, a, a political writer, a podcaster, a tweeter or Twitter or yeah. something or right. Twitter. Yeah. Here, here um, are the podcasters telling people to chill out and not have an opinion. on <laughs> Don't have an opinion on everything. And here's our opinion on your opinion. Having yeah. an opinion. <laughs> Um, but I think, I, I don't know, I think it's just maybe getting into how I do my work, too, is that I kind of am starting to feel, you know, it, it's it's difficult to, to, to have a job that feels like it's contributing to the outrage a little bit. Yeah. And I think I definitely go back and forth a bit between what I do with the blog as far as, you know, really straight you know, news coverage, anal analysis sort of stuff. And then I feel like there are times where I get pulled into being like more, more emotional, more sort of like takey with it, more political. And, and maybe that's partly because it, you know, we're getting onto the edge of an election season here. Right. And I think I've been thinking a lot about just like election coverage and how, you know, everybody's always like, Oh, you know, it's going to be so fun. You're going to have so much to write about. I'm like, no, I, I don't really like, election coverage all that much because it doesn't feel to be like it's not very meaty right it's much more you know about it's like a horse race than it right. is about a policy discussion and i think that's kind of maybe that's sort of all all to say that i'm not looking forward to the next you know however many months we have here until we get a new new set of elections here you are someone in your journalism you do a really great job of just kind of documenting public meetings and <clears throat> and contextualizing them. Sometimes your editorial voice is snarky, but a lot of times you're providing context. Like this guy says this, but also he voted against this other bill. Like um, I'm trying to think of a specific example. Like last week when Representative McCabe got up and talked about how we shouldn't make changes to bills memorializing people on the floor and how that should be done in advance. And he was really angry about that. Um, you know, but you pointed out some of what he'd done in the past that was kind of like this stall and delay tactic stuff and how he'd contributed to a similar uh, environment in the legislature. And so like, I think that like that has a place because if I'm just dipping into the news, I don't necessarily know who this guy is yeah. or what his context is. And so I feel like you do good work in that in that realm, and I can see why someone who fall like yourself who follows public meetings and reports on what's happening and like does deep dives into the uh, Supreme Court cases and just you know really tries to pull out the meaningful bits of these discussions. I can feel I can see why you would not be eager for an election season with kind of this all, like already we have this air of of toxicity around it where everyone's kind of angry and you're like maybe what you're feeling is this sort of dread impending doom of like here comes the big angry season and and yeah. it's not really what you want to do <laughs> and i feel like yeah i feel like also you feel you you maybe feel the burden of of contributing to it because you do have you have been i'd say in the last couple of years your editorial voice has become more distinct like you are saying more things um sometimes a little tongue-in-cheek sometimes a little snarky but I, th I feel like maybe there's some guilt associated with that of like, okay, if I want other people to lay off, maybe I need to lay off a little bit too. Or like, am I generating, am I generating more outrage? Am I contributing to this like outrage machine? But I think there's a balance there. I think that you need to, people need to be outraged about some stuff. Like if the, if the redistricting board violates the law and tries to mess up elections for the next decade, let's be a little outraged about that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, too, I think that's where what it is, is that, like, to me, I feel like there are definitely times where it's right to be outraged. And I think it's right to be involved and motivated. It just feels like, though, I think they're, they're, everyone's, like, on a hair trigger, it seems like, sometimes. And I think there are parts of my work where it feels like, oh, I'm not mad about this. I'm not, like, worked up about it, but everybody else is. Like, do I need to get worked up and angry about this, too? <laughs> and I think that's sort of where it, it, it feels kind of difficult because it, it's sort of this just yeah like this rage season almost yeah. anger season and i think it's like i do i don't and like i don't mean to besmirch anybody who's feels strongly about whatever but i think it's 
just weird when we have to feel strongly about everything. You know, especially in journalism, like what you're doing, you're kind of looking for the bad thing to expose. And so I, I think you must get get lost in that sometimes. But okay, I, mean, I think like yeah, like in 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 Palmer right now, for example, yeah. they they switch their festival from oh. the Colony Days to the Braided River thing, yeah. and then everybody freaked out about it. Now they've already already turned around, and it's going to be Colony Days already. It's just like you could sure you could write about that at length from every single different angle, and yeah, it's crappy. But it's just again, it's just one of those things where it's just like. I don't know, a little, to me, a little eye-rolly, the whole situation. And that's right. maybe, maybe I need to bring, I did for like four editions of some one of my newsletters or one of my uh, Friday in the Sun columns, I had like a shrug of the week. <laughs> maybe I need to bring that back, you know? I think it's just like a, a little bit of like a who cares about it and, and anyways. So. I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, that, uh, yeah, I do, that's, yeah, that's an interesting one because I think it, it matters, right? Like we're not. Yeah. We're not indigenous, but I can imagine that if I if I was Alaska Native, I'd be fucking pissed that there's like a festival of colonization. Like, yeah. are you like, yeah. like, yay, colonization, woo, let's have a party. So I, I think that um, I think that makes a lot of sense that people would want that to go away or, yeah. or to be re- yeah. rebranded. Anyways, um, we, we wanted to talk a little bit about I think we want to talk a little bit about the, the election coming up and um you know, it's it's been just a roller coaster of a, of of the last week. Uh, lots of people are announcing that they're running, both in the special election and in the in the regular November election. To uh, oh, this is a great point. I think Scotty Max on Twitter made this point, but uh, it's not Don Young's seat; it's Alaska's seat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so people are running for for Alaska's uh, seat in Congress. And I don't know how much we want to get into this. It's going to be, you know, we got months to talk about this but it's and it's gonna be outdated in about five minutes anyway right so yeah so let's um but yeah i mean it's just interesting sort of the dynamics of the whole thing because right the the political calculus really changes when it goes from don young's seat to alaska's seat right and so i wouldn't be surprised if we end up with more than 20 people on the ballot right and i don't know i think it's kind of I wish kind of I kind of wish elections were more like this a little bit in yeah. the sense that like it's uh, going to be a really abbreviated election cycle, right? So the the um, the special the primary special will be in June, June eleventh, I think, and it's yeah. uh, and it's by mail, so you'll get a a thing in the mail and you'll get to vote for one candidate on a list of however many there could be could, there could be fifty people running, probably it'll be more like fifteen twenty. And you get to vote for one of those people, and then the top four vote getters, because we have now have a top four primary. The top four vote getters will be will go on to the general election, which coincides with the regular primary election, which will be very confusing for people. Um, so the so the and I think that's in in August. Um, I don't remember the date off the top 16th. of my head. Sixteen August sixteenth. Okay, yeah. And so August sixteenth is the it will be both the primary election for the regular election, which will be top four again, but also the ranked choice special election for Alaska seat in Congress. And so, and then the person that wins that will serve for what, four or five months until the November election replaces them. So Mm -hmm. uh, it could be the same person. It could be that we have a, uh, someone enjoying the, the honorific of being Alaska's Congress person for just a few months. Yeah, I mean, I think that's there's like kind of two sort of points that I want to make here, too, is that like, you know, I think there's sort of I, I get kind of there's an assumption that whoever is going to win this is like going to be the next Don Young, which is just like a kind of a wild assumption to make because, you know, there's just so many sort of factors that made it so he held on to the seat as long as he did. Right. Yeah. Like luck. And yeah, exactly. And and I think that, you know, moving forward, you know, this is going to be a, like a compet- I think this will be a competitive race every two years. Right. As long as there's still an open primary system, at least. Um, but it, which is the other thing is that I think, you know, this is we've already seen. Right. The There's a very strong kind of conservative pushback against 
ballot measure two and election reforms contained in it. And that was really funny, by the way, because this special election came months ahead of time. And so you just saw everyone like turn their calendars up and be like, oh, my God, quick, undermine the elections. We, yeah. we were planning to do this three months from now. We got to. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I think that's something to keep in mind with it all is that there's going to be a, a, a lot of like just frankly, dis- disinformation about how the system is going to work. There's going to be some honest to goodness confusion about how the system works. And, you know, I think that, you know, I, I'm just, you know, I'm hopeful that the system remains in place in some format for a couple cycles because it's, you know, it's going to take a while for us to really understand it. But I, I'm worried, I guess, that the vitriol of the whole situation will fuel changes, you know, immediately after it. And so, yeah, I, I think that's important in, in who we elect, right? You know, who gets elected out of the system is going to determine how the system lives on. And so I think it's just something to really keep in mind as we move forward here with all of this. Yeah, but I mean, also the people who are elected under this election system will know that this election that this election system works for them. They'll be incentivized to keep it, right? Because it's. I mean, and that's this is the election system that got me elected. Why would I want to get rid of it? I mean, that's a, and that's a really good point too. Because you look honestly at you know the one of the biggest cheerleaders against ballot measure two's system right now is Governor Dunleavy, right? He had this unhinged, totally unhinged press conference last week. Um, where he basically, it was the weirdest thing where it was basically you would get Lieutenant Governor Meyer, he would say something, Division Election Director Gail Fanumia would come on and give like a little more detail, Assistant Attorney General Corey Mills would come on, and then she would kind of give the legal sort of understanding for it, and Dunleavy would come on and go, harumph, I hate the whole thing, <laughs> you know, it's just a horrible system, I would love to overturn it if possible, <laughs> and then he goes, oh, but by the way, remember to vote, and yeah. so it's just, a, it's kind of to me like, but, oh, so it's, what I was going to say, though, is that, like, you look at this guy, he's got two pretty, like, serious conservative challengers against him. There's a world where he wouldn't win his Republican primary, yeah. right? If it was the most conservative Republican voters that were deciding his fate, I kind of think Dunleavy might lose that race. Yeah. Like like Frank Murkowski did against Sarah Palin. He was an incumbent, right. and he lost to her, and she was sort of the, like, more right-wingy, uh, you know, primary. Populist-y kind of, yeah. And so I, I think there's, uh, you know, I think Dunleavy, it's a really interesting thing because I think that he would probably, I wouldn't be surprised if he would have lost under the old system. But right. anyway, so and I think there's this weird kind of con- misconception, too, that the whole system, like, favors one party over another. You know, the, the only kind of really good sort of look at, we ha- you know, there's not really a good an- anal- analogy for it right now, but you look at, you know, other races in New York City, for example, uh, Maine, where they end up, you know, getting the sort of center right uh, candidates in a lot of these races. I, I think, if anything, it it, do, it favors no party. It favors it it, yeah. it it takes some power away from the parties by, you know, by by opening up the primary. That's the main thing about this. Like the ranked choice voting, take it or leave it. But the open primaries is is really essential to changing the way our government works and functions. Because right under the right. old system, you had a very small subset of people making decisions about who was going to run in the general election, and and then your the entire electorate's options were limited once you got to the general election. And so now this pushes all that primary decision making into the general election. We all get to make the big decision. Mm-hmm. And I think too, and you look at the special, for example, right? I believe under the old system, the political parties would have been able right. got to name the candidates. So there would have been, you know, really strong gatekeeping effect. It would have to be somebody who's approved by the party, right? Yeah. And and under the old um, old system, then Frank Murkowski gets to appoint his daughter to the Senate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. That's the way it and should so, work. It's really yeah. Funny. I mean, that's funny. Like hearing people talk about like like you know you, we saw Sarah Palin go on TV and she's like, oh, I'd be honored to to do that job. And like you you can tell she doesn't understand the election system and thinks that somehow she's going to get appointed. <laughs> I mean, Don Levy even seemed to think you could get you could appoint someone to it. Well, so yeah. It's, yeah. it's that I, it's, a, it's that sort of like authoritarian mindset of like, oh, there's an open seat. I should get to appoint someone. <laughs> right. And I think like the, this election to me is like just mechanically really interesting. Right. Because you don't have this long you know runway to make this race. You know, the only two people that have really been seriously campaigning for that are still in the race are Christopher Constant and Nick Baggage. But everybody else is like going to have four months 
or less, three months yeah. to really like get into this. I, but I think that like is kind of good in the sense that, you know, it's really a test of your sort of natural support, you know, that what kind of support do you already have in Alaska? You can't, you know, you can't come from no zero name recognition. You got to have something. Mm-hmm. You got to have the backing of sort of the political forces that be. So there's like still, there's still obviously like gatekeeping effects in here. But to me, I think it, it, it sort of a snap, this sort of quick election is, is going to be, I don't know, it opens the door to, you know, more interesting and different candidates. And yeah. I think that is going to be just like from a, a policy wonky perspective, like that's something I can get interested in, right? At least with the regular elections, it always just feels like, you know, just what machine can turn out the votes better, right? Or what kind of, how, what, you know, how does it all land, you know, with the, sort of the timing of it all? And that's still an, an impact here, but it just feels like it's more more unknown, right? And I think the idea, and my and part of my concern too with the open primary system is that there's going to, you know, in some cases there will be kind of the tacit agreement to like not run, right? To kind of keep the, keep the candidates limited so you still only have one, Republican candidate in the race or, or one Democratic candidate in the race. Well, but here, like, there's no, no one can keep a lid on it, yeah. right? And I think there's some kind of interesting element of that here that I really find is going to be really interesting to unpack. Yeah, it's kind of fun to have this many people line up for a statewide race. And it really gives the electorate someone to be excited about. Like, like there's probably someone in a pack of 20, there's probably someone that I actually want to do that job instead of having, you know, two people and having to choose the lesser of two evils, right? Right. I, I mean, that's the whole system before, right? <laughs> Is that you would be voting against somebody and, and here you get to vote for somebody. And I think like, and it's also to say like, you know, there's still, there's still some strategy in how you vote, right? Yeah. I think you still need to, you can't, you know, you can vote for whoever you want, but you probably should vote for some, you know, should probably vote for somebody you think will get there, right? Yeah. But I think that yeah, like you you said, the biggest thing is it's taking the party out of the system. And I got I get really excited good. about this race a couple times this week. One was when Mita Dewitt said she might run. She was um she was the she led the recall effort against Dunleavy and um and just as she would be a really good non traditional candidate. She's like a Alaska Native woman who is interested in like medicinal plants and and. Uh, has a lot of like traditional indigenous knowledge you know you look at that person like that in the light of today and you're like oh wow this person is like really important in their community and is a is a knowledge bearer i I would have loved to have seen her get in the race because i think that she's just really level-headed and and would have had a lot of good things to say and do and you know maybe wouldn't have even won but i think that she would have changed the conversation so much that it would have been really good for the state to to have that voice and i and it also would have been nice to see her run because i i think that it shows that you know alaska native women belong in that space and i think that that's not something we see often in our statewide races um i was also really excited to hear that andrew halcrow might run and just and only in the special election because i you know he's sort of interested in this like temporary honorific like it's a good story for cocktail hour like oh i was a congressman for four months (laughs) or whatever right and like and but i think that it's um like he he would be he would also he's also someone who would bring a lot to the to the table in terms of discussion because he's very knowledgeable he's got a long history he's got some name recognition and i think that he could have some real fun with that special election um and kind of stir up new conversations that we're maybe not having well and i think that's it's interesting too is that he's like you know he's a republican but he's like the republican party clearly doesn't like this guy oh yeah he's not not a fan of him and the same with um former north pole state senator john cockhill got it you know he's you know, this old school, extremely conservative, you know, dude, but fell out of fell out of favor with his party. And I think there's you know, I think there's a lot of feeling here from the more I don't know if traditional is even the right word for it, but just the more kind of like non burn the house down Republicans it, it, <laughs> to like yeah. kind of sort of push back against this. And I think that that voice in here you know, you would never have heard it before, right? Because that voice would have been eliminated in the primary election and, have, you know, not have had any real platform. And so... Um, we'll have to circle around to this in the future, but Coghill is like, it's shocking to me that he was rejected by this kind of religious right-wing uh, part of Alaska because he is so much a, 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 
voice of reason within that circle and it, it's wild to me that he was kind of like eaten by his own yeah I, I don't think he'll do well in a race like this i think someone like halcro actually might because like you said he's he's like an acceptable conservative to liberals and he's a, a sort of a and he is a conservative where he might get a lot of second and third votes in like a ranked choice situation so he's someone that like a ranked choice system might favor as kind of a uh, acceptable centrist right and i think too like coghill like i i think he's got a lot of like respect i've I covered him for a long time but this guy is like extremely conservative yeah. so just keep that like he's he's a respectable republican but he's like you know he was the one that is run like he you know there was not an anti-abortion bill this guy didn't like i have so. i have him classed in my brain as like borderline flat earther <laughs> like, I don't, I don't, <laughs> like yeah i i don't know that i think there's some i think he holds some convictions that would be shocking to people Yes. Yeah. Well, we, okay. Well, we will circle around to this because there's a great debate that I'm, we're going to, we're going to look at in the future. All right. Yeah. And then, um, so the, the filing deadline for this race will be 5 PM April 1st. So get your filings in quick and uh, we'll, we'll probably, you know, we'll run it down next let's week. Let's all run uh, for Congress. A, yeah. All right. Matt, are you going to run? No. No, you're not, not going to run for Congress and cover the races. That's like a yeah, popular thing yeah. now. Oh, I should. It yeah. would be yeah, Gonzo reporting. Yeah. yeah, I have to put on pants for it though. So, oh. I, I'm out. I'm out. You got a you got a snappy new suit though. That'd be yeah, be pretty prime uh, running for Congress wear. You know, I, although I, you, I guess you really would need to switch it out for cards. I, so. I've said this a lot before, and I, I will say it again. But I don't think there are a lot of people in alaska that i think they stand up and they're like oh man i should run for congress and then they think about like oh then i would get to go to dc and i would have to be in dc all the time instead of alaska and i think that's one of our our biggest weaknesses as a state is that a lot of the people who run for congress want to live in dc right and then you gotta run for the race every two years too i don't know it just seems like Maybe it's just a job nobody else... Maybe that's why Don Young had it. Nobody else wanted to do that job as bad as he did. Oh, Sean Parnell wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So the other thing that's in the news um, that I think probably slipped by without uh, a lot of notices is the 33rd anniversary of the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Um, and I realize that happens every year. There's an anniversary of the Exxon Valdez oil spill, and that 33 is not a particularly auspicious number. But this year is... Um, poignant i think because there are currently ongoing spills in alaska right now and you know in the light of the of the impact of the exxon valdez spill it's kind of weird that we have this like this giant gas leak in prudhoe bay that no one knows anything about right now there's uh what's this guy's name hold on a second yeah so there's this guy uh adam fetterman who's a reporting fellow for type investigate he's from uh, northern new york state grew up in the adirondacks and is just kind of this environmental reporter that does a lot of investigative reporting and during the trump years he started covering the interior department and that is kind of how he got connected to alaska so he did this big story on anwar and then he started learning more and more about alaska and now he's just been and, and he has been up here in um, 2019 he came to kaktovic for one of the public hearings on the on the um, oil and gas leasing program and through that he started learning more and more about alaska policy and uh you know alaska oil and gas policy in particular and just sort of like has been paying attention a lot and, and asking a lot of questions about things in alaska so there's this gas leak up in prudhoe bay and like the only thing i've been seeing about it is these little like blips and blurbs on twitter and i haven't really i think there's like maybe an article in the adn that kind of framed it up a couple weeks ago but you know what i'm learning from him is that the state really doesn't have any idea of what's going on. It kind of seems like the state either isn't equipped to know or does not want to know what's going on up there. And that that there's this potentially really dangerous gas leak happening. I don't even know what all the implications are, but it sounds like kind of a big deal. And that maybe we just don't get to know about it because it's behind this like shroud of, of uh, this oil company is like, ah, don't worry about it, guys. We're taking... <laughs> We got it under control. Yeah, I mean, I think I've seen this too, and it's like it, you know the the official, and it's I think you know from the perspective of a reporter too, is that it's so difficult you know to cover some of these situations when nobody wants to talk, right? And, you know, we covered at the news miner, you know, covered a decent amount of interior, you know, attempts uh, exploration for oil and stuff, and we would get you know invited out for the you know the ex, you know the day they're drilling, the exploration days or whatever. 
and then we never hear about it again. You know, yeah. we never hear about how it went, which means it probably didn't go that well. But, you know, if there was ever a problem, we never heard about it. You know, I think it's it's sort of just this interesting kind of way of, you know, how there's not a lot of accountability. You know, there's not a lot of, you know, especially as a member of the public, as a reporter, you're, you don't really have, you can't force somebody to talk if they don't want to. And they don't frequently don't want to. Yeah. I, the, the interesting thing about like Adam's reporting here is that he's, he's like, you know, don't take it from me. Listen to the former North, North Slope oil and gas industry regulators coming out of the woodwork to say that this lack of transparency is baked into the system. And then he like digs up these guys that are, you know, as a former chief state regulator for the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, I'm not shocked. You know, this is classic North Slope behavior. Alieska was like this as well when I dealt with them in a regulatory capacity with the state. They know the state lacks the resources and willpower to actually enforce its own regulations. So they have no incentive to bother communicating and, and so you're seeing all these like you know former um o and g regulators for the state kind of chiming in and saying like yeah this is how this works like <laughs> yeah and i think too like the other sort of like twist on it too is that it's like our gas ostensibly right it's like alaska owns that resource right and is it being wasted and so that's like the you know part of the oil and gas conservation commission um, job, but right that you know a lot of these sort of things are either you're right underfunded or driven by people who you know are at least friendly enough with the the agencies that they're not or the organizations so they're not super heavy on them. And so um, it, it's interesting, especially because you know there's so much talk about Alaska's regulatory environment being the best in the world and the cleanest, most responsible development that you've ever seen is happening here. And then meanwhile, you have like on the flip side, this like pretty clear example of it being completely opaque. Yeah. And so this is like this is from March 8th. The the uh, um, there's a report that says like a days long natural gas leak has forced a partial evacuation at one of the biggest oil fields in North Slope, Alaska. And, you know, so they're like people are being evacuated. There's something serious going on. And it, it like feels like we don't really have the the capacity to put our arms around it. And you know, getting to what you just said is that like, you know, we've got politicians like Governor Mike Dunleavy or Senator Josh Rivak who say we need to develop in Alaska because we have the best regulations here in in the world and this is the safest place to do anything. Um, and it's it's kind of funny that like, I mean, I'd, I'd maybe accept that line of reasoning from someone who is actually working to put those regulations in place or working to like shore up those regulations. You know, if, if you've got, I don't know, if you've got someone like Matt Clayman or, you know, someone that does the work, someone like Jonathan Christ Tompkins coming out and saying like, we have great regulations here. We need to, we need to spur development within that regulatory framework. That's meaningful to me. But if you've got someone like Josh Rivak coming out and saying that it doesn't really hold a lot of water. It just sounds like a, like logic lever like he's trying to take people's concern for the environment and turn that into more production and it, you know you see this because people like again Dunleavy and Revac are like the first people who complain when policy is actually enforced and so like go back flip back the calendar to August of 2021 and you've got this um, you know U.S. District Court ruling from Sharon Gleason that says basically that that Donald Trump's Bureau of Land Management didn't follow NEA policy like you know they were supposed to analyze this North Slope project and they didn't really do it sufficiently or illegally and so the first people to come out and say this is a travesty you know here's Josh Rivak um, this decision should be deeply concerning to every Alaskan Alaska resource development pays our bills for public safety education yada yada you know and this ruling is heartbreaking for the hardworking men and women in the industry who are you know who by the way are mostly flown in from other other yeah. other places right and so it's so it's really it's like these there's this strange phenomenon that we're seeing now of like Alaska has great, environmental protections we need to mine here we need to drill here we need to develop our resources because it's the safest place because this is the best option that we have and like i can kind of get on board with that concept but it's frustrating to see it coming from people who who don't really give a shit about environmental regulations <laughs> right well i think i think and that, that to me i think is is sort of puts the, the fine point on it right is that you know, so many of these decisions that came out of the Trump administration that dealt with resource development in Alaska, like you were looking at them and you're like, oh, 
they cut corners. Like I can see that they cut corners in this process. Like of course it's gonna like and that you know and if they hadn't have cut corners, if they hadn't if they had dealt with it as they should have dealt with it, all these decisions wouldn't be being overturned right now, right? Like they're being overturned for pretty glaring problems, um, you know, fundamental problems with the process. And now you know they get remanded now to the Biden administration, which is not gonna be so happy to cut corners. But at the same time, right? Like the Biden administration has approved a ton of oil leases all over the place. You know, we, it's sort of this difference of trying to deal with policy and politics, right? And they are just two wildly different things, right? And, you know, I think it's interesting to see the Dunleavy administration just, they can't, they love, you know, bashing Biden, Biden shutting everything down. But then you look at, you know, what's going on in Alaska right now. And, and you know, there's a pretty big battle over um, road access on the North Slope that is, you know, making developing the pickup project much more difficult right and the states all of a sudden has no interest in helping you know forward those negotiations right and so it's just i guess how it is you know you look around the state and there's reporting that you know kodiak has almost 100 percent renewable power right i've talked about kodiak a bunch before kea is awesome right they they're they're doing cool things there you know there was an article just recently about kotzebue and how wind and solar farms now power 75 percent of the town and it's you know these these quiet renewable projects are kind of like chugging along and replacing fossil fuels and we could just be doing that like across the state we could just be prioritizing our energy independence and we talk about wanting to be independent and independence is so baked into our narrative and our nature and like we should just be doing this we just like that's where we should be putting our money and oh but don't you you don't you know that all those renewable energy relies on mining hey, we got so we got to yeah. go mine pebble mine now well if you, if you love if you love the environment <laughs> you will support <laughs> strip mining <laughs> Yeah. Um, I mean, that's. A, I think it's interesting. I mean, it, it is. It's just this like. Yeah, sure. You gotta you gotta mine stuff to build stuff. I mean, I think that's that's what's so difficult about it, right? Is that like resource development, uh, energy development, energy production are these like incredibly difficult like policy efforts? These like large, you know, mega projects in many cases, or just like regular you know civics projects and others, and and um. It's just it sucks when it gets kind of all weaponized for political gain, right? Because that's like that's sort of the whole like the whole harping on everything is just really just to amplify Biden bad, Biden the bad man. <laughs> and like yeah, is he like is he he's probably not great for Alaska resource development. Like let's we'll be honest with it. But like you know, it would have been, you know what, it was even you know what wasn't great for Alaska resource development either. Trump, the Trump administration cutting a bunch of corners left and right, right? Like, so, you know, they left it with a bunch of, like, legal vulnerabilities that they should have buttoned up, you know? And I think that's sort of the problem with it is that it, it feels so much more political than it does ever, like, a true like it's not good policy, policy yeah. issue. And I think that's, you know, that maybe it's just me just harping on everything about not you know i wish wish everything was a, a policy debate rather than a political debate but yeah and maybe I, it's it, just and there's uh, there's such a gulf between on me <laughs> no there's like a huge gulf between policy and and politics and i think that like people get caught up like you have to kind of like fight the politics battle before you can implement the policy and so but then there's people that just get lost in the politics and like that's all it ever is for them is the politics and then you never really get to the policy and mm-hmm. you know well, if you really want a good example of that, let's talk about how nuclear power needs to be part of our renewable energy future, clean energy future. I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> I got some good videos that uh, crypto uh, guys can tell you about how great nuclear is going to be. Yeah, so. great. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that if I think you know, if, if we're talking about the like the suitcase power plants, I think that we, you know when when rural alaska communities start clamoring for those then maybe that's when we think about it but i think if it's yeah. someone coming in drop we drop them off if here's, it's if it's here's a, instructions set it up for yourself yeah, yeah but if it's a salesman coming in from outside telling us we need to buy this like state-of-the-art tech and put it in an, as an experimental thing in some rural community I, I don't know, i'm not super hot on that i mean i think it, and it is one of those things I, kind of just all to say like all this sort of thing is like 
I, as an individual human being with a journalism degree and, you know, too much time on my hands, have no ability to really truly vet any of this stuff, like, you know, on any angle, right? And so... Sure you, know, you do. Like, sure you do. I mean, that's yeah. Okay, so, I have my heart. No, so I can you know. But. No, but you like you listen to all these public meetings. You get all of this information and you synthesize it for other people to consume. I don't think I mean, that yeah. you're like you might not have a, a degree in any of this stuff, but you're listening to people that do have these degrees talk about it and share information and data, and you can tell like what's hinky and what's not. Right, but then but that's reliant on these companies being clear and forthright with their information. Right. right. So you look at you know the North Slope situation. It's like you know, there's probably like three paragraphs, you know, or three, you know, there's just, there's so little information out there that, you know, being able to really vet it, you know, and understand because it's right. Because there was fear for a minute that it was going to be like, you're going to blow up the nearby town and then maybe not, or maybe it was. And yeah. there was a lot of like, don't talk to the media in it. And it's difficult when there, there's not a lot of transparency in it. Yeah, and, right. And you I want think, the state you know, to be part of that effort of transparency rather than like trying to occlude things. Right. You know, I, I go back to, I think to, to to tie back to something a couple of weeks ago is that, you know, there was this, um, the Legislative Budget and Audit Committee, when they, they approved their subpoenas in the, the Angela Rodell lawsuit, they did it all in open session. And I thought that was really interesting because it there you know so many of these meetings they go to an executive session to talk about whatever you know we saw it used a ton in the redistricting lawsuit where they were getting advice on how to map in executive session the board of trustees for the alaska permanent fund corporation like met to respond to this they did it all in private meeting didn't say anything about what they did in public so we don't have any idea of what their what their strategy is but it's all to say like i I really really enjoyed having a legislative budget audit committee where they talked about it out in the public and wish that there was more of stuff like that i think it's a good example man the permanent fund board's getting super dodgy aren't they yeah that's very strange so they met in private to discuss the rodell thing and then just like ended the meeting and didn't tell anyone what they talked about yep or what they did. They voted on something in the hearing and then we don't know what it was. So until like until someone shows up with the lawsuit or whatever, <laughs> that's just it. Apparently, right? Yeah. You know, all these things are, are, are public agencies, you know, with ostensibly they have some responsibility to the public and clarity. But and then so when you see that they're not, I think it, it, it it's just, you know, it, it makes you wonder like who the government's working for right or are they do they really have our interests in in hand and i think we've been shown time and again that they don't right but it, it just sort of is tough when you continue to see this sort of stuff play out behind closed doors so what's going on there is this just like a slow motion battle for our like 80 billion dollar sovereign wealth fund and who controls it i think it's a little bit of running out the clock too i think that you know if they refuse to participate if they challenge the legislature's authority that's a month, two months, three months of court battles, right? And I think that's sort of part of the, the frustrating process here is that, you know, I think it is a battle over it, but then it's a battle that will play out in slow motion because of, you know, the litigious nature of it all. Yeah. And well, I'm seeing also the, the ADN reported on this and other folks have been talking about it, but the the local investment, right? So there's like 200 some odd million dollars of investments mm-hmm. going to Alaskan companies or companies operating in Alaska. And they've been really tight-lipped about how much and who is receiving that. And uh, that's a little bit, you know, we've got this state where everything's so connected that it's hard to imagine that that's not going to friends or political donors or politically aligned organizations or people's own communities. Um, And I, you know, that's where transparency really plays an important role. And this idea that some chunk of our sovereign wealth fund might be uh, kind of being shaved off to to prop up friendly projects, uh, like that's a little disturbing. Right. And I think, you know, we've seen this is an administration that is happy to do that. We like get in these big fights about cultural issues, you know, or whatever. And then meanwhile, on the other end of the, on the back end of it, they're, you know, quietly handing out bucks to their buddies. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's wild. You got a, you got a fund that's $80 billion, you know, shaving off $200 million for your friends and political, you know, goons. It really is like a small drop in the bucket. Right. And and the other thing too, is that it, it may be all fine. It may be all fair, but we have no ability to judge it without 
any of that information, right? Yeah. We don't have, you know, how those conversations went about how the, you know, what, what projects applied and didn't get it, right? You know, we don't know any of that stuff. And it's another one of these elements where it's like, it's not, not clear. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, all right. That's oh. great. All right. Good, good <laughs> chat. Sounds fun. All right. Well, I don't know, man. I, you know, it's just sort of, we, we, I think that the kind of thing that we've been doing lately is just, we're sort of rehashing the, the the week in review and you kind of get to the end of of the week and you're like all right i guess we'll see what happens next time you know yeah. i don't because yeah. i don't you know we can speculate but it's going to be a whole nother week of surprises and and we'll come back and talk about it again yeah yeah and i that's I, what we you know we you know despite everything that we can still have an opinion on something i don't know i I, I really enjoy having these conversations with you and I hope that like we're not contributing to the you know, whatever your uh, you know personal feelings are about like the the greater dialogue being crunchy right now I think that the I think it's it's hard because there are a lot of people yelling at each other and it's hard to know like what people's motivations are and stuff but so that's it's kind of nice to sit down and talk to a human being about these things and mm-hmm. reflect on them a little bit and fully in the recognition that we don't know all of the pieces and we don't know everything about everything and that we are flawed and wrong and might disagree with our own selves next week um and it's it's kind of nice to have that ephemeral point in time uh discussion about things also, I was thinking about podcasts recently, and I think that there's something that's nice about doing this in, in that, you know, our voices aren't taking up space that someone else's voices could fill. We're just sort of like having this conversation and posting it on the internet, and people can listen to it if they want to, but we're not really displacing anyone. And, you know, like uh, us talking to each other doesn't mean that two other people can't do the same thing or that five other people or that a thousand other people can't have this, you know, a similar conversation. And so I, I kind of like that the, the nature of this sort of independent hobby work is that, you know, that we're not, we're not really taking up a lot of space. We're just taking, we're just having this conversation and making it available to people. And I I feel good. That was something that I kind of came to. I was like, Oh, I kind of feel good about that. Like that this is just a, a thing that doesn't matter. I mean, and some people listen to it, which is nice. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that too. <laughs> but you know, but I think I think that yeah, the sort of constant effort to sort of like check ourselves too is has been good. I think that sort of, um, you know, it helps kind of guide our voices because I think you know we've we've at times worried about you know this becoming a wine factory, um, you know about <laughs> I believe they're of, called you know, vineyards. Yes, yeah. and and. Uh, and I'm just glad, you know, I'm glad that we're in, in this and we have people listening and telling us when we're out of line sometimes. So, yeah, yeah. I, Alaska is a small state and it's nice to know the real people that are out there. And, and, uh, you know, I think that that's the, the one heartening thing to me is that like a lot of times when you get into like a crunchy discussion on social media, you can sort of like back it up and be like, okay, where are you from? Like, who do you know? Like, what are we, what are we talking about here? And, uh, you know, I think that we're all we're all really deeply interconnected here, and that's like our saving grace. Right? Yeah, I agree. Well, I didn't miss anything exciting in the legislature. I was out of town. There's a lot of there's a lot of COVID going on there, so you better oh, really? just, uh, just be careful about that. Yeah. What's uh What's that story right now? Is it? Uh, I don't. I've, just... The word is it's ripping through the building. Oh, okay. Well, I will... the, the house uh, tried to meet today with mandatory masking and. Uh, the usual suspects refused to mask, and so they just canceled their floor session today. So wow, All fun right. stuff. Yeah, yeah. I'll, 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 I will not be uh, visiting the building then this week. Yeah, there you go. All right, Matt. Big big news and early news on the redistricting front. I'll, I'm going to let you do it. This is the yeah. thing you've been covering. Go go ahead. So on Friday, when I was just getting done early with everything for once, uh, around like four o'clock, we got the Alaska Supreme Court's decision in the redistricting trial. It's a week ahead of time, and uh, it was surprising. So basically, the kind of the real high level point is that um, they agreed that the uh, East Anchorage Senate pairings were a political and partisan gerrymander and should be reversed. Um, a decision that goes back to the board so just keep that in mind so the board will be making the decision what the final maps look like they just can't put eagle river with east anchorage now yay um yay 
So that could, then, actually, that could actually impact a lot of Senate districts if they try to do something wildly creative instead of just fixing it. Right. Because they could so, very easily just fix it and only affect a couple districts. Yeah. And so uh, the alternatives that were proposed by board member Banky um, during the process, um, you know, had, you know, everything almost was kind of different around. So the whole city of Anchorage could have different Senate pairings by the mm-hmm. end of it. So we'll see. And there's a couple races, too, where people are kind of like not sure where they're going to run because they got re- they got paired together with an incumbent and they were maybe going to run for Senate. But so now that Senate seat might be open or might have an incumbent that you like in there now so there's a whole element there the supreme court though they did reverse the superior court's ruling that the skagway and juno maps were unconstitutional so they found that they are so what that means is mendenhall valley will be with um, haynes and skagway um, whereas downtown Juneau will now have part of the Mendenhall Valley as its district. Do you have a, a strong feelings about that? This is the one where they were kind of talking about how it, um, the public testimony was sort of ran against this and should have been factored in. seems that they kind of weren't buying that argument that public testimony should have an elevated element in it. But I don't have strong feelings about this. I feel like Juneau just needs a north-south split somewhere along Egan Drive that makes sense. Um, and that was kind of what I testified to. But how, how they fit in the uh, sort of satellite populations of Haynes and Skagway, I don't really have a strong opinion about. I can see how Haynes and Skagway would probably feel better represented by downtown, but I don't think that they're going to be poorly represented by, by the Valley, especially considering right now it's, you know, it's Andy Story that's has that seat, I think, so that she would be really um, cognizant of their concerns. I think if it was a much more hard right leaning Valley Republican, then maybe they would be uh, a little bit dismissed. But I, but I think right now they've, they would have good representation. And I know that our Senator Jesse Keel, who would also be their Senator, you know, that's, doesn't really matter where they get lumped in. They have the same senator. So I think Mm -hmm. that it's overall, I don't think it's probably a big deal, but I also don't live in Skagway. So it's, you know, I think that people who live in Skagway or who live in Haines probably have a, a, you know, much better perspective on this uh, and how it impacts them. But for me, in terms of like continuity and contiguousness, I think that it makes sense. Yeah. And then um, the other sort of big decision on it which is kind of interesting, actually. That you could really we could unpack it forever, but I'll I'll keep it kind of quick here. Is that um, on the Valdez and Matt Sue lawsuit that was challenging sort of their connection and then sort of some several other little issues with it? Um, the board had carved Cantwell out of the Denali borough and put it with the rural interior district. So they called it the the Cantwell carve out. Um, I think one person called it like a uh, offensive appendage. Yeah, the Cantwell. It looks finger. like an appendage. I've heard Cantwell it's a, finger. It's an, it's an appendage, yeah. and um, they, so the Supreme Court struck that down. The Supreme Court pointed out how the board was really inconsistent in how it applied its it sort of decision making there. So basically, they they pointed to so the argument there was that uh, in Cantwell is that it improved the socioeconomic um, integration. To the point where it was, you know, fine satisfying the compactness of this district, which is funny because in Skagway Juno they were arguing that the compactness should have overrode the socioeconomic integration. So they're kind of arguing that in one area socioeconomic integration mattered more than the other. The court really dinged them on this and said that like, hey, you can't can't apply them differently, you know, especially because you're arguing that compactness over here is more important. So they, they struck that down. It's interesting because um, it's not gonna, well it's it's not going to necessarily result in a really big political shift, I guess, or a lot of remapping because putting that Cantwell back into the Denali borough actually improves the population numbers because it's just it's two hundred people. It's not a huge thing. Um, or one of the uh, senior justices that was on the case wrote a concurring opinion that basically talked about like. Hey, are we sure that like the ordering of our priorities is like right here? Because kind of it goes, it's got to be contiguous, then it's got to be compact, then it's got to be socioeconomically integrated, then it's got to be, you know, population deviation sort of has got to be minimal. And, and he's sort of writing like, well, that's the order that they put in the sentence. Is that really what they meant? And it wasn't an issue in this case. So it wasn't something that 
um, they're going to like sound off on because it's not something that's being challenged here. But it sort of opens it up. It's sort of like a, a just a, a sticky note to put on your 2030 redistricting file. So yeah, they also discarded the hard look uh, standard, right? So this idea that you yeah. have to take a hard look at things, which is I, it's probably okay that they got rid of that, but but I think that they the things that they ruled against uh, I, I, sort of say. They, they point to a fair process. I mean, honestly, to the hard look standard, as they were kind of looking at applying it to redistricting, would have kind of been relatively meaningless in the grand scheme of things. Like, yes, it would elevate the, th- the, the testimony and it required the board to, like, at least explore it. But the board, the, the level of justification that they could reach to say they've looked at it was potentially pretty minimal right right? it would have just been uh, like one hoop to jump through that really yeah mean much and so i think the the more important thing here is that you know there was a big discussion at oral arguments about you know how do you know whether something has been gerrymandered or not and and the the board was arguing that well you need to have evidence you need to have proof that it was gerrymandered you have to have proof that there was intent to gerrymander and it sounds like a kind of a sensible argument you need to have proof that they're doing something bad but the problem is is that you know rarely and this is what um uh, the attorney for east anchorage plaintiffs argued uh, holly wells argued is that you know it's easy to be racist it's easy to hide racism and stuff it's easy to hide bad intent you know so rarely is any you know rarely is anyone ever going to stand up and say I am gerrymandering, you know, I don't like them and want to help other people. The problem is that that actually happened. There's actually a statement on the record here where somebody was saying, you know, this has the opportunity to give Eagle River more representation. So in this case, there actually is some evidence of intent here. Um, The board would argue that they didn't really mean it. Or, or that they would have said the same thing for East Anchorage because East Anchorage is getting split across three sure. Senate districts. Okay. They literally, I mean, they, they were literally saying at the, the the oral arguments that because they will have their population spread out over three districts, which is cracking, that's called cracking, that they'll get they'll have a head start on any issue. They'll have three votes, you know, which is yeah. just the idea that Eagle River Senator Laura Reinbold's going to, you know, jump when East Anchorage asks her for something is just preposterous i don't know and so this idea that like and senators are are beholden to everybody is is kind of a wild sort of assumption especially when you're pairing two like very different areas together right and so the court was very clear that they were concerned about gerrymandering they're concerned about how to prove it and it looks so we don't have the full kind of the full rationale at this point but i would it looks like they're you know open receptive to this idea where you know the intent could be more inferred with it um i think it's going to be really important moving forward because like that what we've seen from this process is that it is it's easy to manipulate right you know you saw that with with everything right you know the 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 main kind of details of this you know sort of broadly speaking every single part of this map ticked the um constitutional boxes right and that's because they kind of they had a pretty sophisticated understanding of what the rules were. They just pushed them a little too far. And so kind of the question is, I think, moving forward is like as we are getting more and more sophisticated with our efforts to redistrict and, and to sort of tweak the dials in ways that are still constitutional, you know, how do we check that there's not sort of unfair intent in here? And I think that's kind of what my takeaway is with this is that, you know, yeah, they might have played by the rules, but they still were kind of violating the spirit of them. And I think having that sort of come in here is really important moving forward because redistricting is getting more and more kind of sophisticated and underhanded um, as you know our understanding of it improves, as technology improves, as all those sort of things improve, it's easier and easier to be more, you know, kind of tip the scales on, on favorably. So, yeah. So, so they didn't, you know, they didn't say anything about like, they didn't set any hard and firm rules. It didn't seem like there was a lot of big, important precedents. You know, they didn't say you need to follow the Open Meetings Act or that you need to uh, take a hard look at things. They said, fix the Eagle River Senate districts and fix this weird Cantwell thing and uh, and you're good to go. And so that mm-hmm. works for me. Like the thing there is that the, it shows that the courts are there to kind of catch the mistakes and they aren't interested in 
rewriting the rules so much as they are in just doing the work. You know, and, and I think it worked this time. I think it ultimately it was a functional process. The redistricting board went in and they made some decisions and the weird decisions got called out and corrected. And, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, I think this is going to be a really good redistricting process for Alaska. And, you know, in 10 years, I hope it goes as well or better. Yeah, totally. I think that's a good good takeaway because it you know this was a place right where we saw a lot of potential new standards new sort of tests to be applied and the supreme court really kind of didn't wasn't interested in it it was sort of interested yeah. in playing by kind of the main set of rules that we've been playing by this whole time and i yeah. think i think it, it speaks well of the process and of of the courts themselves of not you know there's just sort of this this feeling that the courts are redrawing the maps themselves or whatever and it's, it's just not the case right they're just you know they're looking at the rules they're looking at what happened and, and seeing you know whether or not it was fair and yeah. they found you know just very really in the grand scheme of things two very limited cases where it wasn't and um that's you know that's better than almost every other plane in the past you know i mean yeah the last redistricting round had two major redraws that both ended up in the courts um yeah. And so this one, I, it, you know, there's just not it, it should be much cleaner and much quicker. And so I haven't heard at this point uh, when the redistricting board will be meeting again, but they need to have everything cleaned up for by June one, which is the filing candidate filing deadline. Yeah. Hopefully they'll make a smart decision and just do easy changes and not try to get too overly creative with redrawing all the Senate districts to favor Republicans. But if. You know, if this is the end of the process and they just make a simple change to the Eagle River Senate districts and clean up the Cantwell thing, that that would be ideal. And I think that it would have I think that we would have a good result um, from what could have been a far worse process. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. All right. Great. All right. Thanks for that little bonus. Yeah. <laughs> Call that a day. All right. Goodbye, Alaska. All right. Bye.